Welcome back to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast, where we will explore the local arts culture and community in the Lehigh Valley. We'll be doing this through conversations with individual artists, administrators, and organizations. We'll discuss all types of mediums with the goal of enriching local arts culture. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast. My name is Ben, and today I will be joined in the studio by Elizabeth Johnson. Elizabeth Johnson, an artist and exhibition curator, began writing reviews for artpractical.com in San Francisco, California, and later covered exhibitions in New York City, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley for the artblog.org. She has written for artcritical.com, Art Voices Magazine, figureground.org, the Brooklyn Rail, and deliciousline.org. She currently interviews artists for Gross McLeaf Gallery in Philadelphia and Philadelphia Gallerists for the artblog.com. She curated The Big Painting Show at Workspace Limited in San Francisco's Mission Direct and has since curated shows that mix local and visiting artists at Lafayette College, Cedarcrest College, Brick and Mortar Gallery, and the Soft Machine Gallery, all in the Lehigh Valley. She co-curated Pathological Landscape for Marquee Projects in Bellport, New York, and Residential Tourist for Gross McLeaf Gallery in Philadelphia. Solo shows have been held at Cafe Museo, and most recently the show Worry, on display at Soft Machine Gallery, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, Canada College, Redwood City, California, Fort Mason Center for Arts and Culture at San Francisco Museum of Modern Art Artist Gallery, and in 2019, Cedarcrest College. After receiving a BA in Fine Arts from Bard College in 1986, she lived in San Francisco, California for 25 years. She moved to Easton, Pennsylvania in 2011. She makes oil paintings that suggest dimensional space using curved and warped images. A big part of today's interview will focus around that show, Worry. Worry features 22 artists from Philadelphia, the Lehigh Valley, New Jersey, and New York in the hope of soothing shared political and cultural anxieties by revisiting classical drama. Loosely modeled on Penelope, Odysseus, and Athena from Homer's Odyssey, Worry compares Penelope's suitors to a throng of stubborn anxieties which might be mitigated through art rather than annihilated. Worry compares Penelope's suitors to a throng of stubborn anxieties which might be mitigated through art rather than annihilated. Emphasizing Athena's association with protection, handicraft, and wisdom, but not war, Worry identifies Odysseus not as a military hero, but in terms of the joy of wandering and distraction. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming into the studio today. I'd love to get this episode kicked off by asking you how you got involved with Soft Machine Gallery. Uh, when I moved here from San Francisco in 2010, I kind of started sniffing around for galleries. And yeah. they were, then they had a space over, I think it was on 10th Street in Allentown. And I met them. It was a small space. And I was in a show one of their shows at that time. So that was like way back in 2011 or 2012. Um, and we've always kept in touch and they're on my mailing list. As you know, in the Lehigh Valley, you you get to know like different people that do different things and you yeah. kind of keep track of them. So we've kept track of each other. And then recently, even John had to go through a whole remodel. I don't know if you heard about that. Yeah. How arduous that was they were dealing with code stuff from the city they had to spend a lot of money like yeah. five years very hard um so once they got that settled eva invited me she just said hey let's do a show and so i started worry last year october wow so it took a long time I I, of imagine. course i'm doing other things sure but, but it is a long process and i'm not 
uh, serious, you know, educated PhD type cur- curator. I'm a sure. what you would call a guest curator. Yeah, I just float around and do things for fun. Tell me a little bit about um, what goes into that into that feeling as a guest curator, because there really is at times um, a perceived strain between being the the gallery themselves curating it and having a guest yeah. curator. I started out guest curating for colleges. So I've done Cedar Crest College, Lafayette College. Um, I did a space in San Francisco when I lived out there. And you, you just kind of, the, the opportunity arises yeah. and you say, okay, let's go for it. And you generally have a host person that you like or trust. You got to have that, like an anchor, somebody you feel like they've got your back, you know, yeah. and there's no money in it. You should know. Um, usually it's for free. And um, the advantage is usually that I get to show my work and include some of my friends. And it, it's a party. For the most part, it's a, the opportunity to have a party, yeah. um, show your friends, show yourself, get people to meet and network. And that, um, for our opening in May, May 27th, it was just this madcap party everybody was talking and gabbing and eating and drinking and it was wild i didn't have a i didn't have a chance to sit down once it was really really fun that's awesome so you want your friends to meet each other yeah. you want them to give you know maybe hook up and have opportunities with each other um i was excited to introduce Renny molinar and rocio cabello who i met um through writing for the art blog in philadelphia I, it clicked in my mind that they would have a lot in common with Eva and John. So they, oh, I did an article about them and the way timing, the timing happened, that was like January flash of 2023. So the way the timing was happening, every, you know, the artists, I just started assembling the show from the artists I was meeting yeah. and the people I knew each from each already, you know, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that core worry, right? So for those um, that may be listening to the show, um, there's a lot of great literature and write-ups that do already exist um, that explain the show. But for those who are not as familiar with those write-ups, yeah, um, what can you what can you tell me about it? Worry? Well, you're worried, aren't you? Oh, <laughs> politics. Yeah. The social situation, all the you know unrest polarization, you read the paper, you watch TV, you listen to what's happening. I'm the, my biggest worry is climate change. Mm. And I, I, I feel like personally that that's the underlying cause of a lot of the like, gun massacres and mm. um, unrest that we have is that people are upset and they don't know how to, to express it. So we have root causes for me the root cause is climate change um other people would have other opinions so i i thought about the show um i've been thinking about it for about a year or two i have a list of possible shows happening all the time just ideas and when eva said let's do a show i said ah we should do this one and of course it opened and there was the big um debt limit debacle oh, in yeah. the Senate at the time was like, yeah, of course, everything, every step we take, there's another major crisis. You feel like you get over COVID and then there's something else and then there's another shooting. And yeah. so 
I'm worried and you're worried. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So with with that in mind, um, you have a number of works in the show as well. Mm-hmm. Two works. Um, what can you what can you key me in on about how you took that show's theme and applied it to the works that you you have in the show yourself? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I started with the term worry and that idea, and then I started to think about the artists that would fit. Yeah. And the first artists that I started to pay attention to were um, mostly women who do handcraft um, anything that is uh, meditative, uh, time-consuming, uh, something that they do to they they do to escape. Um, from thinking too much about what's happening outside the studio. That's where the, st- the show started. And that made me think of Penelope mm-hmm. from the Odyssey. And I was, so I started by inviting about four women who work with woven, the idea of weaving or, or embroidery sure. or sewing. Um, and then as then I'm, once I thought of Penelope, I thought, well, I might as well use the Homer's Odyssey as a whole. And um, the next group of, uh, I started picking photographers because I thought of Homer, uh, Homer's, well, Homer's not even necessarily a person. It could have been many authors, we understand. Um, but I was thinking of a Ulysses as a wanderer or someone who's exploring and and distracted. Yeah. So during our time of worry, we definitely distract ourselves. So the photographers, the group of photographers was next. There's like four or five of those. Then Anthony, as a matter of fact, falls into the category of uh, a worry itself. Sure. Was, did you see the show yet or not yet? You did? Okay. I did. So his monsters are very, very powerful and, oh my goodness, and joyful. Yeah. So he and then Renny Molinar with the flag, with the cross, you know, religion and state. Oh, certainly. The book burning, um, Frederick Bright Jones's uh, cardboard uh, chainsaw and gun. Yeah. All those are like kind of like scary objects. And I just kept building from one subject to another. And I didn't even reread the uh, Ulysses. Um, Un- until right before the show opened. Wow. So uh, it just kind of came together organically. I'm not really fussy sure. and controlling. I'm, I just let it come together organically. The problem is not inviting too many artists. Sure. Because you want everybody to come to the party. Totally. So there has to be a point, usually around 20 artists, I'm like, okay, this has to yeah. have a deadline. <laughs> yeah. Now there is an installation portion of this. Yes. Um, what can you tell me about that installation and what uh, what went into choosing which artist you were going to have do an installation? So Morgan Hobbs is, uh, she's the assistant director at Chris McLeaf Gallery. Mm-hmm. And I know her work. And I also know Bruce Wall because he lives in Easton. And when I saw his new work and her new work, it just clicked to put them in those two side-by-side rooms yeah. in the Soft Machine Gallery. And their work together represents Athena to me, rather than treating her as a, a single sculpture or an yeah. object. I was thinking her, of her as more atmospheric and an experience. And um, the way the gallery is set up from the beginning, I was thinking of Bruce's work as the destination 
for the whole show because it's so joyful. Yeah. Morgan's work supports Bruce's and gets you ready for that big, I say cacophony, but it, it's just like over the top. Yeah. Jo joyous colors, shining. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is. It's beautiful. Certainly an experience in itself to to walk into that room and just be washed over by by the reflections and the colors all, all throughout it. So I felt like the, the show worry should reward you. Mm. So you're going through the whole process like Ulysses, you know, all these trials and, yeah. and travel and going through all of these other artists. And then at the end with the, the subtle relationship between Morgan and Bruce was, I hope that you're giving me some kind of like a feeling of, oh, this goes further than yeah. just repeating the story that they, this is a personal experience. Certainly. Pro programmatically, um, that that room certainly felt like the last the last stop in the show before before going back through it. Would would you say that that was that was an intentional choice? From when because I knew the space, um, Eva's gallery. Every and being a guest curator, every gallery is different. Sure. So the next time, you know, there's going to be another physical space, and and how a story fits within that physical space will yeah. take form. Awesome. Well, I'd love to dive a little bit more into you personally as an artist and uh, and your career. So, um, your bio mentioned that you started in San Francisco. Yes, yeah. So tell me tell me about San Francisco, and and maybe we can try and do an abridged version of San Francisco to where you are now. <laughs> I actually I grew up near Gettysburg, so um, I am from Pennsylvania. And then I studied in, at Bard College in upstate New York and then went to San Francisco. Okay. So I was like in my late 20s when I moved to San Francisco. And obviously, like met many kids, I want, I'm graduated. I want to go someplace exciting. So that was the place I chose. And um, I started with, um, I was lost as many are after college. And uh, I did house painting. I did flower design and delivery. I worked in a Chinese bookstore. I, I lived in the Mission District in San Francisco, which is now very, very expensive, but it sure. was uh, pretty rough and ready and fun in the 80s and 90s. Um, it was very international. Uh, a really exciting place to be. I am not an MFA product. I'm I'm an artist that kind of is partially self-taught, and then I study other artists, and then I've developed um, in ways that I try to help other artists. That's how I've figured. That's how my career has unfolded. That I can kind of climb. Sure. Um, is by being useful, helping others, and then helping myself, helping yeah. myself get help. Um, so I was, uh, we maybe like 18 or 1990, I started a wallpaper business. Um, so that's a fine arts type of business. It's, it's, it's contracting. Um, I made good money so that, that would be, you know, like a big turning point for me throughout that time period. I always had a, a studio, so I would rent somebody's garage or, you know, have a room in a, an apartment. I always kept painting. Um, I studied figure drawing at the Mission Cultural Center in San Francisco, which was a place where I met most of my friends, my San Francisco friends that I still keep in touch with. Yeah. Um, so figure drawing is a big deal in San Francisco. 
Um, I also painted the ocean for a spell. Um, we lived out um, in the sunset near Ocean Beach um, by the Golden Gate Park for about 10, 15 years. Um, my husband was at Bard, so he came and joined me. He also worked in the wallpaper business. Um, but I started writing in 2009 because I felt like I wasn't getting anywhere in my career. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't have the MFA contacts and I was getting older, like getting into your late 30s and 40s sure. and you're like losing touch with the youth culture. And um, so writing, I wrote for Art um, Practical and started doing that. I loved it. And and since then, I've just always written for blogs. And um, lately, I, I've been writing for the Brooklyn Rail. Yeah. So I did my third piece for them. So, but the I, I'd say that the writing was the thing that really accelerated my career. Mm. That makes sense. Well, then let's let's definitely dive into that writing a little bit more. Um, like like most successful art writers in history, um, your reviews and interviews call upon that history and theory. Um, so when it comes to interviewing other artists and art writing itself, right? There's there's a rich history of art critics and art writers. Yeah. Um, who do you find yourself influenced by for your own personal writing style and philosophy? <laughs> Um, I wouldn't say there, there's a particular art writer. I mean, I really like Peter Sheldahl, who wrote for the New Yorker. Mm -hmm. I'm a long-term New Yorker reader, um, uh, New York Review of Books reader. Uh, the, um, many of the art critics for the New York Review of Books are fantastic. Yeah. Um, I think that what drives my art writing is primarily always being centered on the artists themselves and like you did i would study the person right i usually write nine or ten questions yeah and then deliver the questions to them and then we have a conversation back and forth yeah and you really i've really learned a lot just from interviewing artists because i have to research into art history sure to to find their threads of thought yeah that makes sense you've mentioned in like nuggets throughout a lot of a lot of these interviews and writings that you've done um, on the current state of art writing, yeah. especially as publications, um, specifically in print, have started to go to the wayside. Yeah. Right. Um, and so there are varying schools of thought when it comes to what should be considered by an audience when reading a piece. Okay. Um, parts factoring into this could be the work itself, the title, the artist's bio. Um, yeah any further literature written by the artist or the gallerist on the piece, the atmosphere the piece is viewed in, um, it could go on and on. Right. When you're working on a review or considering an interview or mm -hmm. um, a show itself, how does the artist or curator's intentions play into your writing? Is that a baseline for how you, how you see its strength or success? I think it's an important factor. Um, the thing that I go for, like hone in on right away is their process, like how someone makes something mm. uh, and why, the how and why are yeah. what I go for immediately, like to the juggler. And then an artist's intention is not always what they de de develop, you know, sure. they can make really great tangential 
work that is different than what they started out wanting to make. Yeah. Um, I go for uh, artists that write are especially interesting because then we can have that written dialogue and we can talk about like what we like to read other uh biographies about artists or things that other artists have written yeah um but it's it uh the i i think i don't deal so much with other curators um the galleries i deal with they hire me Mm. so i'm actually paid which is great and support art writing um uh currently many galleries are not having press releases they are not investing time or money in writing them uh, some of the people i come up up against are saying oh people don't even read them i don't agree i i feel like the art artists especially enjoy having an overarching story that pulls things together totally and our right. current view of how this intersects with our current times um i uh, so to answer your question, I would say it's none of those things you mentioned, but my focus is always on how and why for to the artists themselves. And um, beautiful stated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's such a that's such a key factor and and a, and a large factor in why we choose to do this show. <laughs> we we love giving collectors, gallerists, and, and any potential viewers of these artists' work a look into their process, their history, and and things that they otherwise may never be able to consider when looking at looking at their work. Um, and so that is, yeah, that is that is one of our, our core mission statements <laughs> when it comes to this show itself. Artists love to to once you get into their real like you're saying intention or yeah. desire or yeah. drive or um you know the force that makes them go uh they get really excited about that and it's always good it's like candy that's totally. really wonderful for both of us and um there's a lot of artists that i work with that withhold for a long time but eventually we'll work around the edges and get into the center of yeah. thing um it's i'm i'm kind of nosy um, and I'm I'm a little bossy, um, and I I do have uh, strong ideas about like things should be clear and simple. Don't write around the issue. Um, but I actually learned to write from my husband, who's a fiction writer. So he's been mentoring me through writing for the last ten or fifteen years, and he edits all of my work wow. that goes out. So I have say for the Brooklyn Rail. I have an official editor that works on it, but before she sees it, Matthew and I have talked about it and back and forth, talk, you know, talked about ideas. And so I had the benefit in the background of a really great writer. That's awesome. Well, that that's that's a great lead in. We have a question that whenever whenever the subject matter comes up, we love to ask. And that is when there are two creatives that are in a relationship together, um, creatives are notoriously guarded about their works and how they how they interpret it how they yeah. express that um and in a relationship you you tend to see more of people so being two creatives in your in your relationship um how do how do you see that impacting the way that you look it's giant yeah. i wouldn't be who i am without 
Matthew's influence and presence. Yeah. Mm. In fact, I wanted him to come today because he's funnier than I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's Next amazing. Time. Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd love to dive into your personal style because you do painting as well. Yep. Um, is that outside of literature? Would you say that painting is your primary medium as an artist? Yes. Yeah. I, I think um, I'm more of a painter than a writer. But right now, for the last couple of years, it seems like I've been doing a lot of writing and curating. Um, and that was that was intentional um, because I felt really uh, uh, lost and adrift here in the Lehigh Valley after moving from a busier, more urban area sure. and not having um, contacts. So I felt like I had to do a little work to, and writing was my best tool sure. to get connected and network with people and, you know, get my work seen. So uh, as a as a painter, I mostly am concerned with distortion and um, I, I take images, I find photographs um, in the New York Times and then I cut them up and put them through Photoshop warp and then I end up with this distorted image that I paint from. So I actually paint from photographs. Oh, very cool. And I have multiple photographs that go into each painting. Yeah. And so you are you are not just taking a reference, but you're you're creating more visual representation of the final product through your reference. Yes, there's that important wow. step that that Photoshop. I love Photoshop, and I don't know anything about it. So I go in, and I really, you know, I really mess up stuff, and I, uh, you know, make mistakes and push buttons I shouldn't. It's like it's great. Yeah, you get lost in there, uh, and it flip flops. It does. They have all of these inventions of what you can do with pixels. Yeah. Pixels. Um, so I paint from those strange things that are that I develop. That's amazing. Yeah, when when Elizabeth and I went to the show at Soft Machine, that was really the first time that I got to to be and sit with with your work. And I I was thinking about that theme worry the whole time. Um, but I was also looking and thinking about some of these other shows that you've programmed, especially around Philly, mm -hmm. dealing with mm -hmm. um, residential spaces and travel mm -hmm. um, and how all of those were playing into that. And I could really start to feel and see this this career right. and influence pouring yeah. out of the piece itself. Wow. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear about how these different themes, ideas, and and images uh, pour out of you onto the onto the canvas. It's a good point. So, pathological landscape was in um, uh, Long Island, um, marquee projects, uh, residential tourist in uh, Gross McLeave. Uh, then uh, I'm so glad I'm just like you. Is sarcastic. That was here brick and mortar. Um, and let's see, Lafayette College was a, a Bittersweet, Passing Bittersweet, which was a tribute to Ross Gay, the poet, mm -hmm. who was at Lafayette College. So all of those things, it is pouring out and it is very energetic and um, distraught. My The abstract side of my painting is very busy, atmospheric, layered. Uh, I scrape back a lot and I apply paint and it's very, I paint, it takes me a long time to make a painting. I'm... I'm I'm not one to make a lot of work. I I I will be uh, like Joseph Cornell, who has like few pieces, and then but they they were very important to me at each step. Sure, I don't. I'm not a 
quantity artist. Um, the little uh, painting at the soft machine right now is has a figure floating up into the corner. They they have a kind of uh, uh, psychological distraught quality about them. Yeah. Um, the big one, Adam Aruv, has a lot of things like uh, boats and cars and movement and, in other words, escape. So let's dive into this first piece. Would you mind pronouncing the name for me again? Silkuth. Silkuth. All right. So this piece that we're going to talk about is Silkuth, which was made in 2022 and is 16 by 20 inches and made by Elizabeth Johnson. The color palette resembles 19th century colors, and in the top right corner has a childlike figure who is wearing blue shorts, and the rest of the figure is a fleshy tone. <laughs> um, as you move toward the middle of the piece, um, you start to see these these brushy strokes that are more muted colors. You get blues, you get beiges, you get black, um, and you get some green. Uh, am, I, am I right in saying there's some green in there as well? Um, and then as you move to, down to the left-hand corner, you start to see what looks like more palette knife tones. Um, you're getting blacks, you're getting a lot more darker greens, some purples, some oranges. Um, and then in the left and right top corners, the top left corner, you're seeing an almost cloud-like shape. And in the bottom right corner, you are seeing a, a black and blue, I'm not sure. how like it Rocks. Is. Rocks. <laughs> um, these rock-like figures. And there are rock-like shapes mm -hmm. all throughout. <laughs> I'd love, love to dive more into this. Sure. Um, and hear about what, uh, what you're aiming for with it. <laughs> it's kind of like a psychic space okay maybe uh the imaginary space that you have like when you first wake up in the morning is for me when i first wake up in the morning i feel great regardless and it's like a kind of dream time i'm still in that kind of dream world so this kind of painting space that i try to reproduce in materials would like to be as happy and free as that first time in the morning feeling of possibility, um, infinite uh, depth, uh, anything can be thrown in there and will make sense together. Yeah. Um, I usually work with two, at least two or three definite subjects, like in that case, two figures, and then the rest is more abstract and open, churning energy or uh, fire or water or air. How did you how did you come to the decision to use that childlike figure in that in the top right corner? It's absolutely intuitive. So I have my stack of source material. Yeah. Um, once I found the uh, face, that half face that's in the painting, I go through lots and lots of other photographs, and I just recognize it. I guess that's the best way to say it. That I recognize that that's the one that has to go in the corner. I generally work from the corners in my paintings. Corners are very important to me. Mm -hmm. I like to leave the middle empty. Other artists like will put the most important thing in the middle, but I like to leave it empty in a, a zone of where the viewer can go into it. Yeah. As much as I say, I know that that was the figure that would work. 
there were also behind that decision a hundred times where I knew that this was the thing that would work and it didn't. Yeah. So it's trial and error and until it really does work. So, and knowing sure. that moment is, I don't know if it's a factor, it's a combination of what I had for breakfast and how much coffee I drank and how my day it is and, <laughs> and the stars aligned and I don't know how it works, but there is a right thing. There is a right thing. Mm. You talked before a little bit about your process and your reference images and how Photoshop plays into that. How did, what did that process look like for this, for this piece? Uh, for that piece, um, there, they were pictures, one picture of uh, an actor on a stage in New York. I use always the New York Times images I cut out of the New York Times. So it was just like half his face. It, I want to use photographs in a way that um, there's no copyright infringement issues. And um, I change them quite a bit and they're just a, a leaping off place. Uh, the, the picture of the kid probably carries more of the original photographs in it because of the way the hand was and the way the, the figure is, is foreshortened in space. Um, and the angle of the original photograph was really good that it could fit right into that corner. Wow. So the way that the photographer took the picture originally just fit perfectly into that corner. Um, but that's just chance. Sure. You know? um, I'd love to talk about the other piece that you have. Adam Aroof. Adam Aroof. Um, this piece is significantly it's larger. On, it's a pun on at a remove so it's uh, Adam Nelouf it's, it's like a mispronunciation yeah. at a remove but it's that's also a little pun <laughs> <laughs> um, this piece is significantly larger than 16 by 20 yeah 52 <laughs> by 64 inches yeah. and you see a lot more of those residential spaces starting yes. to leak into it yep um, I can give you the piece would you be interested in trying to provide an audio description sure. here and now. I'd be happy to. <laughs> awesome. Um, what I mentioned before is just generally how how we've done audio description in the past. Um, we try and, and stay away from interpretation okay. more and more toward just what you, yeah, more factual, more closed caption style. Okay. So there's five, six or seven areas in this painting. One has a burning house or a destroyed building on the right-hand side. Um, below that is a, a slice of sea with two ships. Um, as I move across the painting to the left, there's a curved piece of pavement that actually has a shadow under it. So it looks like it's coming away from the painting um, that's covered with cars that have been stretched out and distorted and uh, a retreating van that's going back into some foliage. Um, the top of the painting has a very distant, uh, weak sun, um, uh, part of a tree, a backwards uh, corner, an abstract shape that looks like a corner. And one of the most important parts of the painting is the center, in this case, not empty, um, which is uh, a combination of a house and a tree that is taken from a very distorted photograph that in this context looks like a reflection. 
and it's also in a, in this shape of a ship. So I felt that that was very close to the idea of the Odyssey. Uh, the right, and then the right hand top corner of the painting is mostly purple and green and orange, more abstract, chunky bunches of scraping and painterly stuff. But it's definitely uh, the overall effect of the painting is gray. All of those colors together add up as a gray experience. Awesome. Um, yeah, so tell me a little bit about the choice for the center of this one, not to be empty. <laughs> there you go. It, again, is something I found. Um, I many layers are paint are made are painted to make each painting. And when I get super frustrated, I will take turpentine and dig back into lower layers and see what I can find. So wow. I un, under I mine into, and you can do this with oil paint. You can't do it with acrylic. Sure. So I'm very hard. You know, the artists go through all kinds of struggles. And um, on that particular day, I remember I thought, well, I'll just wipe back and see what I find. My work is about uh, self discovery through material discovery. So mm. I found that kind of ship-like former uh, landscape, little snippet of the landscape, and I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to keep that now. And that gave me a toehold to continue building and come build forward again. Yeah. So I'm very destructive. <laughs> well, you've mentioned a, a few times now about destruction and that process in your work, as well as mentioning that you prefer to work with oils. Mm -hmm. Is that is that ability to dig in with the turpentine um, a big factor in your choice to work with oils over another style of paint? Um, for my generation of artists, uh, you either worked in oil paint or acrylic if you were a painter. Maybe watercolor. Watercolor was less respected mm -hmm. in the 80s when I was studying in school. Um, so from the beginning, I've worked, I mean, we worked in college with acrylic, but it was, oil was considered the serious form. So I'm, I'm fine with just, I've always stuck with it. I know from interviewing artists these days, especially younger artists, everybody works with every kind of material. And in colleges, they're, they're encouraged to explore, you know, go find your material. Um, at the time that I was in college, it was uh, learn to paint, learn to draw the figure, learn how to draw. You know, they're the, the more like uh, rigorous, uh, sure, like kind of old-fashioned skills that yeah. maybe aren't as popular today. People are exploring more today. Yeah, certainly. It feels like there's less structure now than there was before. Um, and not not to say that's a good or a bad thing specifically, but we're definitely seeing many different kinds of artists that in the past would never have seen the success that they're seeing today. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd love to hear about this show programs a number of artists who yeah. are working like yeah. that um, and your, yeah. yourself with that education. I'd, I'd love to hear about how you put aside maybe that that educational feeling or that that older older interpretation of those mediums right. um, and and bring that into your your own curation. As you said earlier about how the my painting and my curation kind of they they bring each other out. They really collaborate. Yeah. As I've done curation and as I've painted, I and interviewed other artists, I 
I've gained a lot more respect for difference. Mm. So where originally when I was younger, I would have looked down on someone who doesn't do what I do because obviously you're more myoptic when you're younger. Um, now I realize it, it's just this vast richness, different and a curation experience is a, uh, a opportunity to show how different those artists are, but how they hold together with a theme yeah. or a story. So I, I use the story to kind of hold together different impulses. And I really, when I'm picking the work, especially for worry, I made sure that it was all different approaches that I didn't want to repeat and have like all landscape painters or or all figure painters. Or sure. Sure. I, th I think that comes across very, very clearly in the show. Everything from you have paper assembly creating a, a much larger work. To, Lodegar, yeah. Yeah. Um, to, she teaches here yeah? at Cedar Crest. Oh, very cool. Um, to the cardboard sculptures, to the wire sculptures, to the found ob object assembly, yeah. um, textile work. Every, really, it feels like everything is... And those are all things that are going on right now. If you took a survey of what's going on in the art world right now, all those things, uh, street photography is very... Everybody takes photographs yeah. with their cell phones. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that are selling them and showing that maybe get it shown a gallery. Uh, the, the fiber arts, weaving, all of that is very popular now. Um, Santi Johnson, who's in the show shows actually she works for the government she embroiders the flags for the president so she wow. is she is a special artist she's hired by the government to embroider those two flags that sit behind joe biden santi's workshop made them wow that's amazing and she she works she works at the masons down in philadelphia so there's amazing people that are doing all these very weird and different things right now. So we might as well pay attention to them. It's oh, not certainly. it's not like it was in the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> I'd I'd love to hear more about your personal connections to to the valley. Um or the Lehigh Valley Arts right. Podcast. <laughs> right. Um but we also know and and acknowledge that the surrounding areas, Philly, New York, DC, Boston and and even even further on the other coast, um, there, there's a lot of important opportunities and things that artists can do to further their career. Yeah. Um, so I'd love I'd love to hear about your your connection to the Lehigh Valley as well as your your philosophy for local artists and getting themselves out there. Right, it's really it's a problem because uh, you have to go to New York and you have to go to Philadelphia. That's the that's the solution. And you have to meet people outside of the Lehigh Valley. You have to make the, your contacts. I have contacts here. I have contacts elsewhere. Um, it's my New York contacts and my Philadelphia contacts are the people that actually really help me hmm. to show or to write or get you know gigs or the um, people in the Lehigh Valley because we don't have the resources here. We don't have collectors. Mm -hmm. My big beef currently is that uh, the question, uh, million dollar question is how to grow a collector base in the Lehigh Valley because there's no sales here. The Worry Show 
I, no sales yet that I know of, and mm-hmm. we have a lot of great art. People have come. The people that come maybe can't afford to buy art. I can't afford to buy art. I would love to buy one of Anthony's pieces, but the so people who buy art would it would be great if there were interior designers here in the Lehigh Valley who uh, support artists and make a point of getting their clients to look at art and buy art or or some kind of resource agency that would help people get interested in buying art. I know the Allentown Art Museum tries. Mm -hmm. Max does a good job. He does a lot of art. But there has to be a bigger umbrella asked to take this on. But I think that there are a few collectors in the area, but even those folks would drive to New York to Chelsea and spend the day mm-hmm. shopping, you know, where they have like a hundred galleries as opposed sure. to, so it is a problem. Yeah. My advice is you got to leave the Lehigh Valley to help the Lehigh Valley. <laughs> so. um, to, me, to me, it comes a lot back to this philosophy of travel, right? There are, there are people who will travel and live in a place and there are people who will travel learn, take in experiences and bring that back to help their community. And I think there's a big distinction there, not necessarily that one's good and one's bad, but just if you are so locally focused, don't be afraid of traveling. Don't be afraid of getting yourself out there. Yeah. Bring it back. Yeah. (laughs) And writing is my way to bring it back and also stay connected to the New York or Philly. It's, I feel like artists since the 90s, artists have been very DIY. I mean, that just became a thing. We had to do it ourselves. It's gotten bigger, which is great. Yeah. And each artist, it is, I would say it's helpful to find a way that you can give something to the art world. You have a skill of some kind that's useful, um, paid or not paid, and get yourself in there and meet people. It's a, it's just a, a manner a matter of trying to build relationships with your peers, people who are at your level of development. There's always going to be, you know, the better artists, the more successful people that you love or hate, and the people under you that you feel like, oh, stop calling me. You know, there's always that, that in, there's always inequality. And um, in fact, in the worry show, one of the big factors what um is i've had artists of different levels there's very well-known artists not very well-known artists amateur artists i like to do that and i i like to also stress that um see bruce wall's piece at the end of the show is i gave him a lot of attention he was on the postcard i really pushed his work yeah he is the he is the end of the story and um, artists I talked to in the show were upset, you know, like, uh, not particularly about him, but like, oh, maybe, you know, my I didn't get enough space or you only use three of my pieces in this, you know, the square footage is not equal. And I always do that in my shows. I want there to be a real world example of inequality in sure. terms like some people are really booming now, you know, some people, okay, Maybe next time I'll give you more, maybe not. Sure. I don't feel like I have to be equal because the show itself is to serve the story. Mm. Not not that everybody gets a five by five square footage. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
That's that's fascinating. My my interpretation of that was was very different. Um, but hearing you say that makes makes a lot of sense. My my initial interpretation was um, looking at your writing and understanding things like pacing, right? And and using these pieces and and the number of pieces and how they are um, in the pacing of of, of the Odyssey. Yeah. No, I like that. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think I think there's I think what you said is is beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> and the and the like for instance uh, the photographers there were different sizes. I didn't have the photographers all print at the same size. So different difference is important. I would say for our time, difference is really uh, a key uh, quality of our time. Mm-hmm. It's a key a key texture of our time. Certainly. So, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming in today. It has been a joy talking with you. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. (laughs) Thank you. If you'd like to keep up with Elizabeth Johnson and her work, you can visit her website at elizabethjohnsonart.com or follow her on Instagram at E-L-I-Z-J-O-H-N-S-O-N 2018. The rest of today's episode will feature short segments from a few of the artists featured in Worry. This is Bruce Wall. And I'm very pleased to be included in Elizabeth Johnson's show, Worry, at Soft Machine Gallery. My work is located at the far end of the gallery space in a full-room installation of recent works entitled Stance, Being Still in a World that is Always Spinning. It is made up of 25 wall-relief mixed-media constructions and floor-based kinetic works. The starting point for this series was a serendipitous moment in my studio from a few years ago. As I was mixing paint for a panel I was working on, I began tossing the paint containers into a large stainless steel bowl that happened to be on the work table. This was done simply for convenience so as to keep the colors at arm's length. As I was working, I glanced over at the now-filled bowl and noticed the intense reflections on the sides of the bowl coming from the clear bottles of brightly colored paint. I reached over and turned the bowl and saw the resulting distortions of color and shape. I thought, wow, this is a lot more interesting than what I'm actually painting. And so my work changed directions. I started experimenting to see how to maximize the bowl reflections and settled on 12 hue color wheels painted on cardboard tubes of varying diameters and lengths set within stainless steel bowls. I also added a variety of materials to construct these works, including mirrors, chrome and crystal drawer knobs, plastic food serving trays, yogurt containers, indoor-outdoor carpet, reflective insulation foam, corrugated plastic sheets, and plywood. The centerpiece of the installation in the middle of the far wall as you enter is a shaped work called Stance. It is based on an enlarged white-on-black outline of my feet with a recessed crystal drawer knob centered between them. The ground of heavily painted black textures emanate in a radiating motion of directional lines that lead your eye throughout the room to the other pieces. The space is balanced symmetrically with paired works on the left and right sides of the room. There is a lot of movement going on, 
but everything is anchored on a central point. So do I worry? Of course I do about so many things, but my hope is that these artworks in this installation offer a momentary reprieve from all of that, and we can experience some satisfying stillness. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Keithline. Um, my pieces in Worry are the tires, aardvark, dog, and the anteater. Um, they definitely focus on the topic of worry because the animals face off against the car, which is unfortunately a big part of modern life. Um, art making, in terms of the question, does it push worry out of your head? Definitely. It's also, a, I consider art making a, a coping mechanism. Hi guys, my name is Anthony Smith. The works that I have chosen to exhibit, they're called canon-style monsters. Um, there are five works that are in the series. Um, and they relate to the show's title uh, because when I made them, I made them in a particular time of my life. Um, when I was homeless and living in New York, um, and I had, you know, zero money to afford art supplies, um, I would go to free museums, one of them being the Rubin Museum, and um, I fell in love with the uh, Tonka paintings that I saw there um, and the sort of uh, mythological creatures that were depicted there. And it kind of related to me in my life in terms of what I was experiencing. Um, and I had these little characters that I would um, create and doodle. And so I just uh, filled in my own um, facial expressions in these Tonkas um, using this sort of line work um, style that I had developed over the years. Very, very simple. Um, and expressive um, layered mark making that I'd done for many, many years. And they were sort of my way of clawing back some kind of language uh, for my for my art style and over the years. And uh, actually, honestly, just I did the work and put them away and uh, forgot about them until recently um, uh, when uh, Liz came by to my studio and took a look at them and said, what are those? Uh, so. Um, yeah, they represent a particular sort of uh, inflection point in my life and my career when I was um, uh, going through some things. And so the idea of worry was very uh, much on my mind. And these works were kind of like a way of um, uh, of uh, sharing what I saw in uh, the Rubin Museum with some of my own uh, personal concerns. And so um, that's why I'm glad that I'm there in the show. I mean, it's very apt work to be included in, in this kind of exhibition. My name is Jill Odegaard, and the titles of my work in the Worry Exhibition are Descending Impression, Systems Arranged, Balanced Instability, Interconnection, Circuitry, and Linear Alignment. To me, these titles suggest some sort of a mechanism or relatedness. My work is made from paper pulp and created by dipping, pressing, assembling, tying, and constructing individual pieces and modules. The installation for Worry was a process of responding to the space at Soft Machine Gallery and exploring visual relationships. In regard to the title of this exhibition, Worry is set aside as I find purpose in making. Hello, time capsule people. This is Matthew Crane. I got some pictures at this uh, art museum called uh, Soft Machine Gallery in Allentown, Pennsylvania. 
and the show was called Worry. Worry. And, um, well, everywhere I go, uh, people want to know, Matthew, how do you take those pictures? Do you plan them out? Uh, do you not know what you're doing? And I say, well, I don't know what I'm doing. And that's uh, fine with me. Because the more I know what I'm doing, the duller my pictures. I'm telling you, and that is one thing to worry about. Oh, yes, it is. You might think that it's all just hunky-dory going around uh, snapping pictures all the time. But it's actually, uh, it causes anxiety. It really does. It makes me anxious. It makes me worried. I dread doing it. I don't want to do it. I like doing it, but I don't want to do it. <clears throat> it's a complicated mess, taking pictures. I wish I'd never started taking pictures. I wish I could just be happy, I don't know, singing Teen Angel for the rest of my life. No, I've got to start taking pictures. Well, there's some chocolate, but it, it's not very... Uh, Good-looking chocolate. Well, it's good-looking chocolate. I mean, I ate every bit of it. But uh, the, uh, what they call the composition, you see, it's a composition. I mean, it just looks like it's just splattered out there. And he just took a picture of it. I mean, where's the formality? What's he saying? Well, I'm not saying anything. I'm saying something now. I'm saying uh, I'm short. And you'd be short, too, if you lived in a file cabinet. Hello, this is Frederick Wright Jones. You talk about worry. Uh, I think all of my pieces have this uh, one characteristic that carries through them. Um, it's the idea of the uncanny, right? They all sort of, either through scale or material, sort of defamiliarize subjects that we know. Um, the uh, bunny bunny is, uh, I made it actually because it was the year of the rabbit and it's actually my year and it's a big year for me, but it's huge, right? It's like huge. And I think that's sort of the, this notion of something big to come. The, uh, you know, Professor Honey Bear actually made first as a, as a mask, went to critique with that. I think that, you know, I love I love the black bear, right? I think, it, I don't know, kind of like seems slow, but they can be fast. They love to climb. It might be my spirit animal. I don't know. Um, but, you know, when you go in the woods, you go out in the woods today, you're in for a big surprise, right? There's these, uh, you got to take your food and either put it in a bear box or tie it up in a tree because they'll steal it. They love it. Um, now, guns, you know, I mean, do I need to go into that, right? When the AK-47s arrive, usually the peace and quiet leaves, right? And uh, the chainsaw, I guess that's the most uh, brutal and personal of the three, uh, nostalgia it's called, because, uh, you know, once I was, I used to cut trees for a living and uh, once sawed into my leg with the chainsaw, it went really quick, it goes quick, right? And so every once in a while, when I was sitting there with a chainsaw, I'd have this thought, be like, oh yeah, that's, that's how quick it goes. Bye. I'm Charles Stonewall. My contribution in 2023 included three of my photographs, which were titled Shedding Light, Just Before Dawn, and On Being. Each of these photographs stems from a different period of time and from three different distinct bodies of work, which is to say, I make art because there was something within me that I felt I could further manifest and understand. 
Making the type of pictures as I do allows me to know how I coexist with the rest of society and persuades me to explore themes that intertwine with hope, setbacks, beauty, afflictions, my ancestors, and social justice. Though sometimes surreal, I attempt to make pictures related to themes of existence that dive deeply into exploring concepts of validation, hope, and indifference. For me, it's like creating a series of visual poems that are connected through a necessary gathering and conversation. However, when confronted with the topic of worry, there's much I am concerned about, particularly as I navigate ways for sustaining a decent income and keeping a roof over my head. The current state of high rental property is absurd, making it much more challenging for artists like myself to rent or find an affordable place to live. That said, it's important to me that I continue my life's work for it feeds on my soul and reflects in pictures what it means to be human. You can view a portion of my work at charlesfstonewall.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much to Elizabeth Johnson, as well as all the artists from the show that submitted statements for today's episode. There'll be a closing reception for the show Worry on Saturday, July 1st at 2 p.m. featuring an artist talk and live music. For more information, please visit Soft Machine Gallery's Instagram at soft underscore machine underscore gallery. Soft Machine Gallery is located in Allentown at 105 Ridge Avenue, Allentown, PA, 18101. Thanks for tuning in to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast, a Steel Pixel original series. Don't forget to like the podcast, leave us a review, and follow us on both social media and streaming services at Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast. Mm-hmm.